All right, so tonight, as I mentioned, we're going to be in 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and 16. And these chapters really are, they really go together because they're both related to the Ark of the Covenant. And they're related to the story where King David, and he's consolidating Israel and he's unifying the people into one strong kingdom. And it's, a, it's an awesome time for the people of covenant of the Lord and going after it. Now, the Ark of the Covenant had previously been in Kirjath Jerem in a tent. And uh, most of you know, but maybe not all of you, the Ark of the Covenant was that treasure chest, if you will, with the Ten Commandments in it. And going back 500 years prior to the wilderness wonder of the Jews when they came out of their slavery in Egypt, it represented the presence of the Lord. And wherever the Ark of the Covenant was, there was the cloud by day and the fire by night over it. And it would be in the tabernacle, the central place of worship, and it represented truly the presence of the Lord among the people. As time went on over the next four or five hundred years during the period of the judges and the time of King Saul, the ark is still there, but we don't really hear about being a central place of worship or of great importance like it was during the time of Moses. But David, having a heart for God and being who he is, he's all about strengthening the central identity and unity of God's people. So he has a, a capital and he wants the presence of the Lord to be there in that capital. When he went to go get the ark from Kirjath Jerem, they were transporting it on a cart. You know, the, the ark was meant to be carried on the poles by Levites, but not just any Levites, the Kohathites, a subdivision of the Levites. And it was on the back of a cart, and it hit something, and it fell, and Uzzah reached out to keep it from hitting the ground. And because he touched the ark, which you're not supposed to do under any circumstance, in that, especially for who he was, the Lord struck him down. It kind of goes with where God says, I, I'm holy, and I must be guarded as holy as those who come to me. And Uzzah was struck down by the Lord. And so this procession with the ark on a cart going to Jerusalem, this exciting thing as David's doing it, all went south because it went bad because this happened and the Lord struck him down. And it's a powerful thing that David had to learn as well as the rest of the Israelites and the Jewish people and so we read back there in chapter 13 where it says that David was angry. He's just frustrated and angry with the situation. Like, how did this happen? And everything was going so good. And how did it end up this way? So he was angry. And then he said, how, how can I bring the ark to me? And he said that out loud. And it's recorded for us in the scriptures. And as we come to chapter 15 tonight, we get the answers to how he can bring the ark to him. And we also get the overall story of these events, bringing the ark to Jerusalem, the huge festival it was and feast for everybody, and then what happened after it. Early this week, I said to my wife, Jennifer, after the Tuesday night study, I said, you know, when you look at David's life, is there a day in his life that was greater and more thrilling and more exciting and more joyful than the day they brought the ark to Jerusalem? Now, as a teenager, he defeated Goliath. So that was war, that was combat, that was terrifying, and he was victorious. But for the man with, for a heart after God, this had to be that day. So chapter 15 and chapter 16 are built around getting the ark, coming to Jerusalem, and what happens after that. So tonight, as we jump into the text, we're really looking at this key theme to see it through. Because bringing the ark to Jerusalem was unfinished business. And David needed to see it through. And as we go forward in application, we're going to talk about this, whether it's our personal lives, relationships, our faith with the Lord, finances, commitment to family, 
commitments at work, community. It could be any number of broad sweeping applications to see it through. But when you look at this story, that's really what he did. In verse 1 of chapter 15, it says that David built houses for himself in the city of David there in Jerusalem. And he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. So as he built permanent homes as the king for for himself, for his family, for his administration, he set up this tent for the ark. This is important because previously he was angry, he was frustrated, and he was like, how can I do this? But this was important. We have setbacks, we get discouraged, things don't go the way we thought they would. So often it's in our nature to be discouraged, to quit, blame others, or not really think about what really happened and why, and just say, ah, but David, with this task, this great task, he was determined, he had the desire and the determination and the passion to see this through. He was determined to get this ark to Jerusalem, not just for his own vision and goals and dreams with the ark, but really to the benefit of all the people, the people of covenant, and a nation, and it had to be done. And you have to appreciate here in verse one that our story is introduced to us that the first thing he does is really take a step of faith and show his faith by setting the tent up for where it's going to go. It's important that our our calling from the Lord, our gifts from the Lord, that walk with the Lord, that future with the Lord, we have to see it and we have to believe it because faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence not yet seen. And it's really important when God's leading us in small things or grand things that we can see the end of it, that we can really see what it looks like. Again, referring to the great missionary Hudson Taylor, his vision was a gospel-preaching mission center in every inland province of China when no one had even gone there with the gospel for the millions of souls that had not heard the gospel. And as he led his life for the next 40-plus years, he was driven to accomplish it, and before he stepped into eternity, He did. Faith sees things before they come to pass. We may not see them clearly, but we can see them. We see our glory in heaven with the Lord by faith. And we see the next thing from the Lord in front of us by faith. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. David setting up this tent was a testimony of his faith that there was something he needed to see it through. He had unfinished business, and he needed to complete it. That tent, who wants to be the king? I mean, all the whole nation's looking at him. It's like, why the empty tent? The longer that tent stayed empty, the more his reputation, his leadership skills, and his faith would be questioned by the people. It's good to go out on a limb in faith, and it's good sometimes to declare that faith before you can yet see it. Because ultimately, our lives glorifying the, the Lord Jesus Christ are going to be examples of faith and taking steps and actions of faith whether or not there's any tangible evidence that it's coming to pass. We need to build the tent for the unfinished business of the Lord, the next step of faith for the Lord, and we can't be afraid to build that tent and say, I believe. And it's, it's our availability to his ability to do things. And that, that empty tent was such a powerful witness to David every morning when he walked outside. I got to finish the job. I've got to get the Ark of the Covenant here. Joab, everybody like, hey, the, the leadership meeting, Knights of the Round Table, if you will, they're all talking about the business of the day, and they're like, hey, David, any, what do you think about the tent? It's like, what do you, it's there for a reason. 
And that's a step of faith right there, and it's a testimony to everybody under my leadership that we're going to walk by faith and live by faith. The tent of Obed, the, the, the previous tent where the ark had been was there, somewhere over those foothills, but the ark had been put in Obed-Edom's house, who's all over these two chapters, by the way. But you know, the longer the, the ark is at Obed-Edom's house, the more likely you'll lose the momentum to get into the tent in your house. The longer you let something be unfinished and undone that needs to be taken care of, the less likely you'll get it done. Statistics show, studies show, that the emotion of passion to do something great at that flashpoint needs to be acted upon, and the longer you withhold acting upon it, the less likely you'll do it. And so David had to move with urgency, and this empty tent outside his front door reminded him and everybody who was watching his faith, we're going to get this done, and we're going to finish the job. As we think about our own lives, it's a powerful image to us, that empty tent waiting for the fulfillment and completion of what is entrusted to each one of us and what God has called us to do for things maybe we've not yet finished or left undone. I speak for myself in many ways when I think about that. So again, our principles tonight are for our personal lives, our faith, relationships, work, finances, career, maybe education, ministry. It's quite likely that many of us have unfinished things that were once dreams and goals and visions from the Lord that we've maybe lost the fire for. And tonight, my hope is as we look at this text, those things will be reignited to see it through. As we look at this text, the first thing that gets our attention is to see it through and complete the thing is we need to identify and fix the cause of failure in the first place. When something's left undone or unfinished in our personal lives, it's... There's a failure, there's an incompletion, and we need to be willing to identify it and fix it. That's hard. That's self-reflection. That's, well, David said, search me, O God, and try me and see if there be any evil way in me. David had invited the Lord to, in Psalm 139, to be over his life and to look closely at it and reveal it to him, to the man in the mirror, or we might say, ladies, to the woman in the mirror. Self-reflection is difficult. Especially when there's been perceived failure or an incomplete task. I've learned a lot of things about failure. I've had great failures in my life. I've had great successes and great failures. I've had great mountaintops and great valleys. I lived my dream. I won the Pipe Masters. But I've also gotten last place in the Pipe Masters. I know how to use the one that everyone's cheering. I know how to be the one that no one cares about and you go home crying. As a surf coach, I coached the worst surf team in the world at the World Junior Championships. A couple years later, I took a, we had a team that was made up of alternates, and we won the World Championship. I know it's like to fly home with no medal, having coached the worst team in the world. Nothing against them. They gave it their best, but they were just the worst team in the world. But I know it's like to come home with a gold medal around my neck on a transcontinental flight. I know it's like in the human experience to hold my dead son in my arms and the heartbreak of being alone with the Lord, sobbing in a hospital room by myself. The lowest moment a, a parent can know. But I've known the joy of dedicating Hannah to the Lord when she was born after that dark day. How can I not but cry almost every time I see Hannah teaching a Bible study in Vero Beach? Yeah, we've... We, it's life, right? Most of you, most of you, you've been a world champion in, in a way with the Lord, all of you. 
the older you are, you've had that great moment where it did happen, and then you've had those terrible moments where it was the worst it could have gone. But when it comes to failure, this is what I've learned. Failure is a verb, but it's not a noun. I've had many failures, but that's a verb to describe something that happened, but it's not a noun to describe who I am. I may have lost, but I'm not a loser. And I may have failed, but I'm not a failure. Unfortunately, though, many people perceive failure personally, and they make it a noun. They take losing a verb and make it a noun and look in the mirror and say, you're a loser because you lost. There is nothing worse you can do to your self-worth before the Lord than doing something like that. Christ didn't die on the cross, so you look in the mirror and say that you're a loser. The victory of Christ for our spirit, mind, and body, and our emotions, and the totality of our life's purpose is not that any of us would come to a conclusion that we're the children of a lesser God, and our life is of a lesser value than our neighbor's. But unfortunately, failure does want to transcend from being a verb to a noun. Whereas Thomas Edison said, I I haven't failed 10,000 times. I've just gotten closer to my success through 10,000 failures. And that's for the temporal. How much more for the children of God? So I would just remind us that David's, you know, it was embarrassing for David three months before to have this big parade. They're celebrating. They're singing. It's going well. And Uzzah touches the ark and he dies and it becomes a funeral it went from like a wedding procession to a funeral i mean i mean it just it flipped and everyone looked at david like what are we doing he's the king in it we're told he's angry and he's like how can i bring the ark to me i was like wow what like everyone home like what a bummer like like your team's about to win it all and then they just shanked it they snatched defeat from victory and everyone just goes home like, I can't believe we found a way to lose that. Like, that's that feeling. Like, how did we let this, how did we, oh, it's just the worst as an athlete or a coach and in life in general. For three months, he had to think about how he felt that day. And it looked like a failure. David was in charge. You're the new king. You just unified Israel. You delegated taking Jerusalem to Joab, and he succeeded. Now he's your commander. But you're the fa- you failed, David. This is your failure. This is on you. I mean, people talk, and people talk about political leaders. Can you imagine, you know, Deborah and Shimei having conversation at the dinner table? Well, if David had just read the law, because any Levite knows you're supposed to carry it on a pole. Oh, honey, don't say that. Well, it's true. The, the cause of David's failure was pretty obvious to anyone that knew the scriptures. Maybe David thought as a king he'd just do it the way he wanted to do it. Maybe Uzzah, because the ark had, he'd been a, a, a caretaker of the ark with his family, he'd become casual with the ark and kind of like, yeah, me and God were like bros like that. And he'd, he'd, he'd got a cheap grace and someone like, oh, bro, I got this. And he's like, no, you don't. I must be regarded by, as being holy by those who approach me. But it all went bad, and it would have been on David. David was the starting quarterback in this colossal loss. But David had that empty tent out front, and he said, that loss in those foothills does not define who we are going forward. And this tent right here is a testimony to it. But when it goes south, and it's incomplete, and it's unfinished business, and you haven't seen it through, and you're discouraged, and you're disheartened, you have to go back and look at what went wrong why did it go wrong, and how do we fix it? Isn't that practical? Because exactly what happens here. In the very next verse, David said, no one, David said, no, no, no one may carry the ark of God but the Levites. 
For the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God to minister before him forever. Then down in verse 11 of chapter 15, it says, And David called for Zadok and Abathar the priest with these other Levites, and he said to them, You are the heads of the father's house of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves. Hey, there's no cheap grace when you're transporting the ark. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. And so the priests and the Levites, verse 14, sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of God, the word of the Lord. The solution, ultimately, to every problem that we encounter in our life's journey, we're going to find in Jesus, time spent with Jesus, and from his word, being led by his spirit. That's really the promise of James chapter 1, where it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and God will give it liberally. That's literally like Jesus saying, seek, knock, and ask, and if you seek, you'll find. If you knock, it'll be open. If you ask, you'll get an answer. And we talk about this. The business world pays big money, huge money, for men and women who can solve problems. The highest paid people on planet Earth are paid to solve problems. Like, say, the CEO of Coca-Cola makes $50 million a year. Why does she make $50 million a year? Because by solving their problems, she makes them $5 billion a year. Who's worth $50 million a year? The woman who can solve problems that makes the corporation $5 billion a year. And I've been talking about this. In the business world, this is the key, is your ability to identify problems and solve them. And this is for the temporal of time, space, and matter. But what the business world without Jesus is limited to is, as I've been saying, left brain, metrics, which is numbers. So there's geniuses that work with numbers, and they solve problems by working the numbers. Einstein, equations, numbers, compound, this, that, everything else. Numbers, numbers, numbers. And through understanding numbers, they solve critical problems with with production, shipping, uh, accounts receivable. They do metrics, and they solve numbers. And the best of them, they get paid a lot of money, and they're scouted by other companies to pay them more money to do better. But then the other element is creativity. That is the other element, is creativity. So all these people, Thomas Edison was famous for this, was his group of thinkers, that original think lab that all the big corporations have now. Thomas Edison had that idea in the late 1800s to solve a problem with phonographs, record players, movie things, the light bulb, the transit light bulb that we use. And he got geniuses together, and they sat around and creatively thought without distraction of solutions to problems to make these things work that we benefit from here tonight. That's the creativity of the right brain. And this is the beauty, because you and I might think like, well, I know my metrics are limited, because I tried to improve my metrics. (laughs) It just seems it's hard. It's like me trying to conjugate Spanish verbs past tense. I just get lost, Okay. Now, creativity, I'm pretty good on creativity. I'm a big dreamer, so I come up with all kinds of ideas. That's my biggest problem. I see this great end thing, but I don't see the first step, and that's why Jennifer's the perfect wife. Because you be like, honey, I think the first step is this. That's right. Can you do it? Right? But the beauty for everyone in Jesus' name, no matter if you live in Pakistan or 
Perma or Southern California, it doesn't matter our background socially, economically, ethnically. What matters is we have the mind of Christ because Christ will give us the insight to understand what went wrong and how to fix it because we have the mind of Christ. So whatever deficiency you have with metrics or creativity, it doesn't matter. If you make time for the Lord and you still your mind and heart before the Lord, and you're like, Lord, this is my problem. What went wrong at work? She, the boss yelled at me. She's mad, and I'm afraid to go back to work, and I can't. I keep messing up the returns at Home Depot. I don't know what to do. Listen, slow it down. Let the Lord show you what to do. Because all the metrics and creativity of the human experience can't touch the genius of the God of the universe who's in our hearts through faith and guiding our thoughts by his spirit. That's an important thought to have. So don't label yourself a failure because you've had failure and unfinished business. And don't, it's always too early to quit. Always too early to quit. Slow it down and let the Lord show you the solutions to the problem. And I'll tell you where you're going to find them. By being still before the Lord and from his word. Where did David find the solutions to the problem? In God's word. He found the solutions in God's word. That's where he found them. The solutions were in God's word. He says, as, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. It wasn't that hard. It was a pretty easy uh, search and rescue mission. We're searching for the problem so we can rescue the situation and complete the process. Well, it was pretty obvious. Crowthites carrying the, the ark on poles. Now, it's not always that easy for all of us why maybe our walk's not good with the Lord. Maybe our marriage isn't good with the Lord. Maybe our relationship with adult kids is not good with the Lord. Maybe our relationship at work's not good. Our relationship with these neighbors is not good. There can be all kinds of things that have stalled that work of the Lord in our life. And the answers to incomplete things that are meant to be complete with the Lord from our life, they're going to be found by being still before the Lord and being in the word of the Lord. And he will give us the answers. Sometimes it'll be obvious, like the Kohathites carry the ark. But sometimes that still small voice will illuminate a text and it will be the key and the code to solve the Rubik's Cube of your unresolvable thing that you let stop you and is now defining you. I promise you in Jesus' name that whatever God has called you to do, and no matter how complex the failure, or the stalled element of that work is, I promise you, if we make time for the Lord and seek the Lord, the mind of the Spirit will give us, identify the problem and show us the plan for the solution. He did so for David, and he'll do it for us. And when you think about motivation for solving problems and going forward, because the world's people that go after more money, they solve problems they get paid to solve problems, so they're motivated to solve problems and get more money because they're problem solvers. But really, we have problems and we find solutions because we're motivated by eternity and the glory of the Lord. And Colossians says that whatever we do, we do it with all of our heart is unto the Lord. So our motivation for not just giving up and quitting is because we serve the Lord and he's called us to do it. So we need to figure it out. We're not trying to figure it out for like some corporation that people have public stock in. And maybe that is your job with the Lord, so that's okay. But we're trying to figure it out because we have one life to live and soon it's going to pass. And only what's done for Christ is last, is going to last. So we need to not just easily abandon. Uh, a, a goal from the Lord easily abandoned is just a wish that never took traction. Man, once you know the Lord's called you to do something and you've left it undone, and I speak from my own experience, you got to go back to it. you got to find out what it was, fix it, let the Lord give you a plan, and you got to get it. Which brings us to the second point. 
we got to get it done. I mean, we figure out what went wrong. We come up with a solution to how it's going to get right. And then we just, it, you know, talk is cheap. The walk is everything. Verse 25, it says, David had this plan with all these Levites. And then it says, so David and the elders of Israel and the captains over thousands went to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. And so it was when God helped the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord that they offered seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen as they were as were all the Levites who bore the ark, so they all identified together. The singers, and Chen and I, he was the chief over it all, the music master with the singers, David also wore a linen robe. Thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with a shouting, with sounds of horns, with trumpets, cymbals, making music, with stringed instruments and harps. And it happened as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the city of David that Michael, Saul's daughter, David's first wife, who had been given to another man, looked through a window and saw David whirling and playing music, and she despised him in her heart. So on this glorious day, David is playing an instrument and dancing at the same time. I mean, he's just having the day of his life. And give David credit. I don't think, I don't think the Michael thing even was a hiccup or a speed bump driving through the shopping center. I think he just, <laughs> whatever. Like, God's doing something special. You want to be a part of it? You can be. You want to have some weird thing against me because what your dad did to me or whatever? You can right? That's how life is. We need to have joy with the Lord because we have joy with the Lord. And if someone doesn't like us because the way we look or our past or the, the hopes of our future, what are you going to do about it? There's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing. You can't help Michael on this day. You just got to enjoy the Lord, you and the Lord on this day. There are always people that will despise your love for the Lord and your joy in the Lord. There are always people that are going to come against your faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. And as you have success and fruit with the Lord, they're going to be against it. They're going to mock it. They're going to be opposed to it. It's like Nehemiah building the wall. They're coming out, Sam and Tobiah, they're coming out to mock the work. Oh, Fox will bring you down. There's always people like that. And you can't give them place in your thoughts, in your heart, your relationships, or anywhere in your life. This is why it says in Corinthians to take every thought captive and obedient to Christ. Because people like Michael want to get in your head and mess you up with you and the Lord and the joy of that day. You just have to discipline yourself and develop fiber and some thickness of skin to say, no, you're, no. Ours is the kingdom, ours is the king, and you just, you just, you just have a nice little party there in that room. Do your thing, because we're doing ours, and there's a, a, quite a lesson in that. But, of course, contextually with what we're looking at tonight, David was getting the job done. He's taking care of unfinished business. And it's like I said to Jennifer and I mentioned, this has to be like one of the greatest days of his life. This, this is just, they got it right. And this time they are the champions. Like, they're like we are the champions. Like, they are the champions. And he, nothing's going to stop it today and nothing's going to bring it down. He opens up the financial coffers of the kingdom, and everyone's there, thousands of people, he feeds them. It's just this huge food and fellowship. He feeds them all. It says in chapter 16 that he blessed them all. In fact, chapter 16, verse 1 says this, so they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected and set up. Can you just imagine, and some of you know this feeling, if you've, well, it's a big deal to graduate high school, but it's a bigger deal to graduate college. 
if you've ever walked for graduation in college. I remember watching my dad get his master's degree at University of Virginia in 72. We have one of those family photos. We have thousands of family photos, but this is one. My dad, it's kind of blurred, but the thing's here, the tassel, and he's given a thumbs up. My, my pop worked hard for that master's degree from the University of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson's University. A master's degree in U.S. government, and so later on when he retired from the Marine Corps, he, he taught uh, U.S. government. That's what he did. He was a landscaper, and then he taught college. I still have his master's degree, the document, you know. There's something really special. When my wife graduated in 2009 from Hope International over there in Fullerton, she was a third-year biology major at San Diego State, committed to marry me. I mean, we fell in love. We had a three-week, you know, like, courtship. I asked her to marry me. We were married in March three months later. By the end of that spring semester, she let go of that dream to be a veterinarian, all, all these biological science classes she'd taken, and became a pastor's wife. And for the next 15-plus years, that what, that's what she did, raising our children, church serving the Lord in Vista, planting churches in Virginia and Vermont, coming back, taking care of her mom, dying of cancer, supporting me in guest-speaking ministry, all those things that we did. And then once Luke went to school full-time, no longer kindergarten, through the No Child Left Behind, back when Bush was president, she was able to finish her college degree, and she walked when she was 40, in her 40s. I just so remember that day. My, the kids appreciate it, but me, because I never did anything like that, I really appreciate it. She had the silver cords, Dean's List. Oh, man. I was proud of my kids when they graduated college. But man, Jennifer, my wife, after 15 years to reboot that file and finish strong and make the Dean's List, her silver cords, wow. Man, when you put the ark in the tent that you built for it, that is a lifetime great feeling. When you pick up the pieces of something that you left undone for whatever reason, and God's called you to finish it, and you put in the work. Man, my wife did one class at a time online for like two years. And we did them together because I learned stuff as she did her classes. We'd be talking about it, and I learned so much. I always remember watching Hotel Rwanda about ethics and the higher law of ethics, like even though the UN law is this, but the higher law is, is a higher law with protecting the, the Tootsies or whatever, you know, and, and the, the moral dilemmas of a higher, I just, I enjoyed all that with my wife, but man, when she, it, was like, it was like she brought the ark to the tent. Do you know that feeling? That feeling when you've, man, when you, when you brought the ark to the tent, when you've seen it through. When you finish something that was unfinished, it is the best feeling. When something had stumped you and stopped you and you let it hinder you and you lost the momentum for it, it's such a great feeling. It's a feeling of joy to go get. Now, this, of course, is a spiritual context with the ark and the presence of the Lord. But isn't that really a principle? Because when you and I have something unfinished and the Lord tells us to finish it, is he not with us for it? Is he not going to rejoice when we rejoice? In fact, it says in verse 26, and so it was God helped the Levites. He helps us. He helps us clean up the mess. He helps us fix the unfinished business. He helps us heal the broken relationships. He helps us get out of debt and get ahead of things and be the head and not the tail. He helps us figure out how it got here and how we fix it. He helps us. He's for us. 
He's for us when we take care of unfinished business and we commit and purpose to see it through. And I'll just say again, there's a danger of delay when you know you're called to do it. And the longer you delay, the more likely your desired determination will slowly fade. And that's why it's so important that you don't let the verb failure define you as a noun and cause you to give up on that dream, that vision, that goal, that plan with the Lord. I believe in eternity we'll see a lot of things where maybe we did. I I at least think that in my own life. I can't fix anything from the past, but I can definitely take ownership for every good thing for the future. There's people at times as a pastor, I thought, man, I, I just so strongly feel this is what God has for them. And they're excited about it, but the longer they thought it through and found obstacles, if you, if you look for solutions, you find solutions. If you look for obstacles, you find obstacles. And by the way, the second thing people get paid the most for is not just problem solving, but getting things done and quickly. And so how much more for the Lord? I don't need the fruit in eternity, man. I mean, in the temple, I want the fruit in eternity. I don't need more money in the bank account, man. I want more fruit for eternity, don't you? People are motivated by more zeros to get things done. I'm motivated by the blood and the tongues of fire over the blood of Christ over me and the tongues of fire upon my life. And so should you be because once we're gone, we're gone. And all the earthly zeros get left behind. But the fruit of being under the blood and the power of the Holy Spirit, that's going from glory to glory. And that's that should motivate us to not let desire and determination fade because of difficulties and obstacles and excuses or even lethargicy, if there's such a word. Just become lethargic and lazy. So many people give up on that upward call of God. It's, it's, it's hard to watch. And I have to tell myself, just because I thought it for someone else's life doesn't mean that's necessarily it because I'm not the judge and jury of anyone's life, nor are you for mine or anybody else's. But still, sometimes you think like, man, I just really... Boy, it sure seemed like that was there, and they just... It's like when I was a pro surfer, and I'd surf pipeline, big dangerous waves at pipeline. I'd bring friends there that were really good surfers, and they were trying to make it on tour. And I just knew that, you, that you, when you see pipeline for the first time, this wave and what it can do to you, it's killed over 30 people. It's just, there's no wave like it in the world. It's just, it's just it's terrifying, but it's the greatest thrill in surfing. And I knew that there was a point where someone looked at it too long. You know, you need to look at it long enough to figure out where you're paddling out, what you're trying to do. Man, but if you look at it too long, you're just like, whew. you just talk yourself out of it. It just comes by like, hey, we got to paddle out. Like, you know, this is where we paddle out. That's the wave you're looking for. Stay out of his way. He's black shorts and just let's go. We got, we got, when we've got the fire and the emotion of the human experience where we know God's saying to do it, we got to do it. And just because there's failure, we got to still do it. Figure out what wrong. Go back there, get the ark, build your tent, go get the ark, and put the ark in your tent to your own benefit and for the witness for Christ, bringing glory to the Father. Finally, the third thing we see, and of course, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So whatever that ark is to get to your tent, Christ is for us. Like we just said, God was with them. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So go get the unfinished business, grab that ark, and put it where it belongs according to the will of the Lord and the word of the Lord for our lives. And the final thing we see is we need to uh, maintain the work. Now, this is an interesting point as we're going through the text on Tuesday night. And I I just, uh, it's something I've been thinking a lot about. We've been talking about this just consistently as we've been going through Chronicles. It seems to pop up consistency, faithfulness, daily obedience, and stuff like that. But here in chapter 16, after 
They fixed, they identified the problem and fixed it. Then they brought the ark and put it in the tent. They had this amazing day. But then where do you go from here? Like, where do you go from your college degree? Where do you go from this life experience? Where do you go from these things that God worked in your life? Like, what's next? Because we're not meant to be defined by a dream of the past. We're meant to be defined by a vision and a goal for the future. That's why, you know, my whole vision of life is always forward with Joy Varan, because it's always forward. I don't want to be identified by, you know, winning my first pro contest in 1978. That was my identity in 1978. Or making the Pipe Masters Finals with Jerry Lopez at 17 in 1978. I was the most inspirational surfer in the world. Hey, that was great when I was 17 in 1978. I don't want to be a 62-year-old guy hanging out on Huntington Pier, drinking coffee, talking about when I was the most inspirational world, surfer in the world when I was 17. Do you? No. That was then. This is now. I don't want to be defined by worship generation with Jeremy Camp and Phil Wickham and things like that, Chim Chaddock in the day in the past. I want to be defined by worship generation with Danny and Olivia and the future with what God has for us. With this church and what we're doing in Orange County, what we're doing with missions and what we do on K-Wave and the vision of where we're going. With our men's ministry and our men's, women's ministry. With Supper Together groups in May. I want to be defined by who we are and where we're going. So we need to maintain what's been established. And in this text, after this apex high watermark, maybe the best day of David's life, only he would know, but you can nominate it for it. We are told in verse 37 of chapter 16 that David left Asaph and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark regularly as every day's work required. And Obed-Edom with his 68 brethren, including Obed-Edom, the son of Jedithan, and Hosea to be gatekeepers, and Zadok the priest, and his brethren the priest, before the tabernacle of the Lord at the high place that was in Gibeon. So there was actually two places where things were being done to continue the spiritual relationship with God for the nation of the, Israel and the people, but to offer burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of burnt offering regularly morning and evening, and do according to all that was written in the law of the Lord, which he commanded Israel." So contextually, there was a time when the altar was somewhere else, and they're doing the sacrifices, and the ark is here, and they're doing the stuff related to the ark. Two different things. Now, Solomon, David's son, would build the temple and consolidate the two once and for all. In other words, when you've had a great day and you've put the ark in its tabernacle, there's still something greater around the corner for you. There's still more to do. Because at some point, the altar is not going to be there in, in the, the Ark of the Covenant here. At some point in a future generation, when David is gone in eternity, like we're gone in eternity, a future generation is going to build this glorious temple. A future generation is going to put this Ark of altar of sacrifices in front of it. And they're going to offer up burnt offerings and sin offerings and trespass offerings. And they're going to worship the Lord. Our children's children are going to see something more glorious than we ever saw in our lifetime. For as glorious as the Ark of the Covenant coming to Jerusalem was with David, wait till we read about Solomon and the dedication of the temple and the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Lord, filling the room like a cloud where they were overwhelmed. It got better. There were bigger blessings around the corner for the son of David. See, this is what we learn in life, that we don't want to lose the momentum of great things God has done in our life. See, we, 
Each thing that we do is a step of faith with the Lord. Each thing that we fulfill as a fulfillment with the Lord. Each failure that we go back and fix and learn from and redeem and go forward and put the ark in the tent. Each one of these things builds this pattern of our life of being fruitful and faithful and diligent and dependable. And we prosper and we, we thrive with the Lord. And so it's glory to glory. And as we fulfill this thing, we're not moving up the corporate ladder. We're moving up... Because they talk in the corporate world where you're kind of, you get this upward spiral success going because you got it all going. You solve problems and you do it quickly and you're all this and that. Listen, but to where? Like, woo. Our fruit with the Lord, our faithfulness to the Lord goes like this and it starts winding up and it goes like this and it doesn't dissipate. It's like Elijah's whirlwind that comes from him in glory. That's our faithfulness when we're willing to embrace those failures and learn from them, redeem them, finish the job, complete the unfinished business, get after it. We've now done this, so now we can do that. None of us wants to stall our life with the Lord because something's incomplete or we're not willing to make that relationship right or fix these financial problems or do this or do that. It always gets better when we see what's wrong, we admit it, we go after it, we go forward from it, and we become fruitful and we get better. When the momentum is established with obedience and good things with the Lord, we don't want to lose that momentum. Businesses understand this. Businesses emphasize how long they've been around because it proves momentum. Billabong since 1973. That's staying power, right? Whereas Offshore Daystar, they came and went. Beachtown, they came and went. Maui and Sons, they kind of came and went. Hang 10, they're long. You see, like, staying power when you have success, if you watch golf and the Prudential commercial comes on, managing people's finances since 1850 or something, it's like, wow, we can trust them. Staying power. See, we like that. See, success, maintaining. It's like Wells Fargo. When you're at Wells Fargo, like, hey, we've been around since they're robbing stagecoaches. It's that idea that you built momentum and you've survived all the bank failures and all these other things. Staying power goes a long way in the world of men, and it goes much farther in the kingdom of God. So we get things done, we have the momentum of the Lord, and then we continue to build that momentum. We build it by spending time with the Lord. We grow in the Lord. Morning and evening, like it says, we're servicing the Lord. We're spending time in prayer. We're reading the Bible. We're going through the Bible. Maybe the Bible in a year, you read through that. You're listening to K-Wave. You're listening to solid music that builds you up. Like you're, you're doing those things. We've got momentum, and we don't want to lose momentum. Because in the parable of the soils, Jesus talked about the good seed, and one seed never takes depth. It had excitement. It had that special day. But it didn't take root. And so it couldn't withstand the difficult day. Then another one, what's the third one? It was choked out by the cares of this life. Like it was there, but it didn't weed the garden. It didn't maintain the garden. It didn't build on the momentum. So for us, with the Lord, in our relationship with the Lord, our experiences with the Lord... And the success and fruit we have of redeeming things that were unfinished and just in general, when we have those victories, it builds momentum. And it's super important we just don't let it drift away by being content with what was. Businesses, sports, what do they call sports franchises good year after year? A uh, dynasty. What do they call sports franchises that win at once and they're in last place? A one and done. With the Lord, his work in our lives should become to look like a dynasty, the kingdom dynasty of the spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ, his word over our life. I want to let God build a dynasty in our life 
the life of the Spirit. And any momentum that we obtain to from here to eternity, I want it to get stronger and stronger through proper maintenance and vision for bigger and better things and ultimately to turn it over to the next generation and give them a chance to run with that momentum. That's what we want to do, especially you older people. We're not just trying to finish the race and get the medal that says I ran the marathon. We're trying to win. Because we're told in Corinthians, we run in such a way to win because we run for an imperishable crown. And I want to turn the momentum up full speed and go right into glory like Elijah and then pass that relay baton to the next generation and give them momentum that they can run with and go, yeah, fresh legs. And let's see how what they can do. We won't know. David didn't see Solomon build the temple, but David helped him get ready for it. We truly, through the word of God and Jesus being the same yesterday and forever, should see momentum for a greater future than anything we've ever seen in our lifetime with the church of Jesus Christ. And I refuse to accept or believe anything less than that because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And my vision and our vision is to establish that momentum, maintain that momentum, make it even greater, and pass it over to these next generation of young people now adults, and the kids that they're having in their journey. And, you know, we'll get to eternity, and in time, space, and matter, 100 years from now, we'll see how it all plays out. But let's, let's learn from David. It's way too early to quit. Figure out what went wrong. Let the Lord show you how to fix it. Get your, get your hustle on. Fix it. Make it right. And then sustain it and make it better. Relationships, finances, ministry, calling, life as a whole. In Jesus' name.